chapter 14. This morning we pick up where we left off last week as we have began a study looking at Jesus' journey from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to glory, His death and resurrection. And we want to look at about every event we can possibly look at. Try to build a timeline for you. And uh, I don't think there's anything that as God's people that will do us better than having a healthy, consistent look at what Jesus did. We live in a culture where we're all we're, we're so consumed about what can Jesus do for me. Uh, what have you done for me lately type attitude. But the truth is that nothing that God can ever do for you will ever compare to what He has already done through the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Paul said, God forbid I boast in anything but the cross. My prayer is that in the next several weeks as we study Jesus' journey to the cross, that we have a deeper appreciation of all that our Savior went through so that we could be saved, that we have a better understanding of the events of that night and their meaning to us, that we see Jesus in His humanity and in His deity all at the same time. My prayer is that by the time we're done with this study, that you that have been part of it will have a much greater understanding and appreciation for what Jesus did for you. Last week we looked at Jesus' triumph in the garden. We saw that where Adam failed in the first garden, that Jesus triumphed in the garden of Gethsemane. And we ended last week with the statement that they arrested Jesus. Tonight I want to take, or excuse me, this morning I want to look at the night that they arrested God. I want to look at the trial of Jesus by His own people. There are, there were six total trials that Jesus went through. The first three took place by His own people. The second three took place in front of Rome. It's very symbolic. He was tried both by the Jews and the Gentiles. What I want to look at this morning is Jesus' trial before His own people and something that happened simultaneously. That being Peter's denial of the Lord three times. With that said, by way of introduction, let's read our text this morning. I'm going to go ahead and have you stand to your feet in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We're going to read Mark chapter 14, verse 43, through chapter 15, verse 1. Verse 43. Actually, let's start in 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, and I, that I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Last verse, verse 1 of chapter 15. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led Him away, and delivered Him to Pilate. Let us pray. Lord, I ask this morning that You would open our hearts, our minds, our ears and our eyes, Lord, to see the depth of all that You went through that we might be saved. God, I pray that You'd help us to take from this tragic night when the people of this world arrested the Savior and condemned Him to die. God, I pray this morning You would speak to our hearts and see, God, what it speaks to us, Lord. God, help us to have a clearer vision of who we really are without You and who You are all alone. God, I pray this morning that You would save those here this morning that have not truly been saved who are no different than the people of our story that are religious, they know the Bible, they go to church every week of their life, but they have never surrendered and placed their faith in and followed the one true Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, God, that You would remove the veil from their hearts, that they would see with clarity the need to be born again and not simply be religious. God, I pray that we'd be overwhelmed this morning with all that You have gone through that we might be saved. I ask now that You would anoint me, God, to rightly divide the Word of truth. God, let us not miss anything that You went through. God, let us not miss anything that our Savior endured. God, I pray this morning You would have Your way and Your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, for sake of not being confusing and 
being able to flow with consistent thoughts, what I want to do is first just give you a brief outline of the period of hours that we're going to study. There were three stages of the Jewish trial and three stages of the Roman trial. In the last verse of chapter 15, verse 1 that I read, it says they led him away to Pilate. That is where the Roman trial begins, and that's where we will pick up next week. But concerning this morning's lesson, there were three trials. The first one was a trial in front of Annas, who is also called the high priest. In John chapter 18, verses 12 through 24, it records Jesus' trial before Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was technically the high priest according to Rome and according to the Jewish people of that day. But his father-in-law, Annas, had an extreme influence over the happenings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes and rulers of that day. You see, Annas used to be the high priest. But he was removed for one reason or another by the Romans. There was something that they did not like about him. There was something that had taken place nearly 20 years earlier. And they removed him. And for sake of trying to keep peace with the government there and and continue that relationship that the Jewish people had with the Roman government, Annas went ahead and stepped aside. Somebody else became high priest. Every high priest that was in succession of Annas I believe Caiaphas was the third, but every one of them was either a son or a son-in-law of Annas. This man had extreme influence. And John records that before they actually took Jesus to Caiaphas, that they took him to Annas. And I believe, if you read the account of John chapter 18, you find that Annas questioned Jesus. You find that Annas was, in essence, trying to catch him up. And if you study your Bible, Matthew chapter 22, verses 22 and verse 46, it tells us something about the Pharisees. They were trying to get Jesus caught in something, some type of argument, some type of thing. You remember originally they brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they said to Jesus, you know, the law tells us that she should die, speaking of the Old Testament law. But what do you say? Well, here's the thing. While the Jewish people had the freedom to practice their religion, they were still under the authority of the Roman government. And the Roman government said, you can take care of most of your own laws, you can take care of most of your own punishments, but you can't kill somebody. You cannot punish somebody to death. If somebody has to be punished to death, it's got to come through us, the Roman government, which is exactly why they lead Jesus to Pilate and try to convince Pilate to put him to death. That said, the first, one of the first things they do, they bring this woman in. They say, we caught her in the act of adultery. No doubt it was a setup. Notice they don't bring the man in. Just the woman. How'd they catch a woman in the act of adultery without a man in the place? We see the wickedness of their heart. We see the setup and the plot. We see how dangerous religion can be and how it really doesn't care about other people, but it's all about inward. It's all about me. 
And they were willing to let this woman be scorned. They were willing to set her up. They were willing to bring her harm and hurt and pain if somehow they could use such a thing to catch up Jesus. Jesus says to them, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they realize, we're not going to catch him up in this. Later they come and they say, is it lawful to pay taxes or not to pay taxes? Trying to get Jesus caught up again. Jesus said, bring to me that, uh, bring to me the coin. And he looked at it. He said, whose image is this? They said, it is Caesar's. Jesus said, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God. They continued to question him. And what you'll find in Matthew 22, verse 22 and Matthew 22, verse 46. I'm paraphrasing, but in essence, they finally came to the end of themselves and they said this, we're not going to trap him up. He is too right. He is too pure. He, is, he, he knows what he's doing. He teaches the Word of God well. And they gave up. But on this night, they brought him to Annas. They figured if there's anybody that's going to be able to trap this man up, it is the wise Annas. And they brought him before Annas. And in John chapter uh, 18, it records the event. And they call Annas the high priest in John chapter 18, even though technically Caiaphas is the uh, person in the real position. Annas begins to question him and Jesus responds back to him. And one of the things that, that is in stark contrast in that passage, it tells us this, that they struck Jesus. Hit him. And they said to him, who are you, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, to question the high priest and speak to him that way? I thought about Hebrews chapter 4 that tells us we have such a great high priest. Jesus was the high priest of all high priests, the once and final and for all. And they're striking him for simply answering the questions that Annas asked him. The hypocrisy is overwhelming. Annas decides he's not going to catch him up and he sends him to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas has the Pharisees and he has the Sadducees and the scribes and everybody kind of there together waiting for this event. Everything was collaborated together. They were hoping that Annas might give them a little something, might be smart enough to trap him up so that, that their job of condemning him to die would not be so difficult. But Jesus goes now and he is before Caiaphas. It is the night hour. I want to say just a few brief things about the reality that this took place at night. I had a list of all the laws that uh, these Pharisees and, and these leaders of the Jewish people had broken that night. And I thought it would bore you if I just went through all of them. But it's overwhelming. They did not keep their own law. And for one, it was against the law to try a man at night. It was against the law. This is the reason the third trial took place that I read about when it said early in the morning they gathered together. In, in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1 of Mark, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes. The only reason they had that morning trial, there's just one reason, because the one they had before was illegal. They're just trying to look right, just trying to cross their, their T's and dot all their I's and make it look like they had not done anything wrong. But I want to paint the picture and I want us to now deal with the, the question, the reality of what an amazing, horrible 
event. You have Jesus, the Son of God, who has come. He has done no harm. He has healed many. He has fed the hungry. He has set the demon-possessed free. He has given sight to the blind. He has given hearing to the deaf. He has had the lame to walk. He has cleansed the lepers of their leprosy. He has done nothing wrong. And here He stands on trial of all people, in front of all people, by the very people who had spent their years teaching the Word of God. By the very people who God throughout the ages had shown favor to, He had shown love to, He had shown deliverance to, His hand had gone with them, He had parted the Red Sea for their ancestors, He had fed them with manna in the wilderness, He had given them drink from the rock in the desert, He had taken care of them time and time and time again. And here they are putting their Savior on trial. I believe that the trial has never really ended. I believe the same trial that we're reading about in our text still plays itself out in our very culture. People are still constantly questioning Jesus. People are still constantly questioning the Word of God. And can I be frank? It is still happening even in the context of those who call themselves followers of Christ. They question the authority of the Word of God. They pick and choose from it. They say, I will follow this, but I don't really like this thing or that thing. And so everybody has their sins. And so I'm not going to listen to that. On this night, Jesus is standing all alone. His disciples have forsook Him. The crowds have left Him. And now His own people have turned on Him. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. Do you remember the story of Jesus and feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children with just a few loaves and a little fish? More than likely, there was probably about 12,000 people at that time. 5,000 men plus women and children. 12,000 is a very safe figure to estimate, was there. That's John chapter 6, when all this is taking place. Notice in a few short years, Jesus is standing all alone. I ask the question, where did the crowd go? What can we learn from it? Because the crowd left Jesus. They were there because they were curious. Listen to me, person in the pew. There's a big difference between, between being curious and being committed. I've seen people, and I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm just telling you the truth. I've seen people come into this church and all of a sudden, this is the greatest place in the world. They love God. They're excited. It's amazing. Never felt the Spirit of God in such a way. They're guns ho They're telling the world about it. But once curiosity fades and commitment refuses to sink in, they're gone. Because there's a big difference between being curious and being committed. Jesus is not interested in just making people curious. Jesus wants committed followers. And what you'll find is the turning point, 
The turning point in the life of these people was the moment that His Word began to penetrate their hearts and deal directly with their sin. It was the moment that Jesus said, I'm not real impressed that everybody's following me around. They follow me around because they're hungry. Not because they love God. It was the moment when... When the Pharisees all of a sudden, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there, there was anticipation, there was excitement. They even flocked to see necessarily what it was all about. But when Jesus' message turned to them and He said, you guys are hypocrites, you guys are whitewashed tombs, you guys have made a, a, a sport out of the people that God has, has uh, put you to be leaders over and you're making money off of them and you're nothing but hypocrites, you are fakes. He pronounced woe to them. And the moment that the truth of the Word of God was directed at them, all of a sudden they were enraged, they were angry, and they sought to put Him to death. Can I tell you, that's the same thing that's happening today. Everybody's got themselves a Bible. Everybody's got one, two, sometimes three or four. Everybody likes certain things about it. There's just about nobody, doesn't matter where they stand, that doesn't agree. That's ah, a pretty good book and it's got some good principles to live by. But when you start to treat it the way it really is, the inspired, in, the, the inerrant Word of God given by God to man, and you begin to deal with the directness of this Word to our lives, all of a sudden... Preacher, who are you to tell me that I can't live with a man out of wedlock, that I can't live with a woman out of wedlock and, and still be under God's favor? I'm not anybody to tell you that. God's the one that said it. I just tell you what it said. If you don't like it, take it up with Him. Preacher, who are you to tell me that homosexuality is a sin? I'm not anybody to tell you that homosexuality is a sin. The Word of God itself declares it. I'm just telling you what it said all of a sudden, rage starts to come up in people. Hey, preach the Word of God. Preacher, just don't preach it to me. People don't want to forgive. They want to hold unforgiveness and bitterness towards people. People want to be hateful. People want to live their lives as liars. I had somebody recently just send me something about homosexuality. And I want to tell you something. In my response, I made the, the, the basic statement that this. Guys, it's, it's no different than lying. The Bible says all liars, all, all, not some, not most, all liars have their place in the lake of fire. We need to treat sin the way that God treats sin. It's all sin. All of sin to fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. This is why Jesus came. I don't deny that there's certain things that, that plague us from the time we're born. I would embarrass some of you if I told you the things I struggle with from the time I was born. But I'll mention some that I know you all struggle with too. The instinct to lie if it's going to be in my best interest. I mean, I was born with that. You didn't have to teach that to me. The instinct to, to take something if, if I could somehow get away with it and it would be beneficial to me. The instinct to be selfish. 
I was born with it, folks. I didn't learn it over 15 years of, of life and being around the wrong influences. I'm telling you, I was born with an absolute corrupt, sinful nature. That's why I needed a Savior, and that's why you do too. But I want you to notice the crowd. It's gone. We're talking 12,000 people are following Jesus around. There's thousands that are around when He starts His sermon in Matthew chapter 5. And everybody's listening to Him teach. But before the end of His ministry, three short years later, where are they at? While I am not suggesting that the church shouldn't grow, I will say this, guys. Numbers can be deceptive. Our goal is not to get numbers. Our goal is to preach the truth, to show people the love of God, to preach the reality of the gospel. Listen, the gospel is good news. It's not just bad news. The gospel is the good news that there is an answer to our sin problem. There is a God that can change us. There is a grace that is sufficient. And there is mercy that endures forever. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how sinful your life has been, Brothers and sisters, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness and there is redemption when we turn to Him in faith and follow after Him. That's good news. But the goal is not numbers. And I would submit that Jesus did everything He did in love. The reason that the people left, it wasn't that Jesus wasn't a God of love. God is love. God is love. He loved them. He loves you. But people are gone. All of His supposed followers have left. Why have they left? Number one, we've already discussed the reality that they left when His Word turned towards them. And all of a sudden, the direct application is to me. Either I accept it and I repent or I get mad and decide I'm going to be like them and try to kill Jesus. But there are some who left. We see in that exact same event, John chapter 6, Jesus looks at His disciples. He says to His disciples, they have all left. Are you going to go with them? Peter says this. I'm paraphrasing. But Peter says in essence, Lord, where shall we go? You hold the words of eternal life. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, but my Father who is in heaven. And we see that Simon, Peter, had a, uh, a revelation of who the Christ really was. And yet, I haven't dealt with Simon yet, and yet Simon is still cowering down. Why? Because of fear. The second reason that people will reject Jesus is because of fear of what will happen. Listen to me very carefully this morning. You will never fully embrace Christ until you lay down your fear of what will happen to you by friends, family, and everybody else in this, com- in this community. Amen. Serving God truly and full-heartedly, is no guarantee that everybody in your life is going to treat you wrong. But there probably will be some that do. Just like the Pharisees, just like the people of that day, our culture embraces religion. It's okay if you're a little bit religious. But don't say that Jesus is the only way. Don't be so closed-minded. 
Listen, it ain't about being closed-minded. The question is, do you believe Him or not? It's that simple. Jesus said He's the only way. I'm not being closed-minded. I just happen to agree with what Jesus said about Himself. How I don't understand. I really don't fully understand how foolish the church has become in embracing this supposed tolerance equals love thing. We have to stand for what is true. And listen to the preacher this morning when I say this. You won't ever really do it until you're no longer afraid of what people will do. Because the crowd, generally speaking, will go the same way it went in Jesus' day, and that is away from the full, undefiled, and complete truth. The Bible says that through the law came Moses, but through Jesus came grace and truth. You see, the first part of it we all like, grace. Everybody likes grace. How could you not? But when truth follows, then you find out who's just curious and who's committed. So here the men are. They're condemning Jesus to die. Can I say this morning that one of the things we can learn from this exact um, trial is the need for spiritual illumination in order to truly see God. There is nobody in the history of the world who spent their lives studying the Word of God like the very men who are putting Jesus on trial. You see, it is possible to know the Word of God but to not know the God of the Word. It is possible to spend your life entrenched in religion and, and know Scriptures and be able to, uh, to, to win Scripture quoting contests and to be able to say, I went to every VBS growing up and I know all the stories of the Bible. It is possible to be such and not actually know God at all. There is a need for spiritual illumination. Church, we need to understand. Look, I'm up here this morning preaching out of the Word of God and I'm preaching truths that you can examine yourself and cognitively understand this indeed is true, this indeed is from the Bible. However, church, we have to understand that unless the Spirit of God illuminates the heart inside of people and God shines light on people's dark, cold, dead hearts, we can do the best to explain it we can, and they yet will not be born again. It takes spiritual illumination. This morning I asked those of you that are born again, how many of you come to church not only today, but every week of your life without any honest, conscious thought beforehand and prayer that, God, I need You to illuminate truth to me. I'm not just going to show up and try to figure it out on my own. I'm not smart enough to see the depths of Your Word. I'm not smart enough to recognize You when You stand right in front of my face without Your help. Because these men had the very Messiah that they'd been preaching about and teaching about and proclaiming He was going to come. He's going to come. He's going to save the people from their sins. The Messiah is coming. And when He actually showed up on the scenes, they said, you're not Him. We're going to kill you.
And I say again, I believe the same thing's happening today. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to be honest. In large part, the Jesus that the Church of America worships isn't Jesus at all. Same name, but Jesus said, many will come in my name. You could... I'm not going to make that statement. But what I will say is this. You can make up a Jesus of your own imagination. You can say, I believe in Jesus. What do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Because that's the only Jesus that really matters. Do you believe in the Jesus that said, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life, not a life. I'm the only one. Do you believe in that one? Do you believe in the one that said, no man comes unto me except my Father draw him? He is the shepherd, not a shepherd. He is the door, not a door. He is the one and only. He said the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, the beginning and the end. There's nothing in between. I am it. He said in the most brief statement possible, I am. There's none other but me. Do you believe in that, Jesus? Because if you don't believe in that, Jesus, brothers and sisters, your Jesus is a figment of your imagination. He does not exist. And when you die, you'll split hell wide open. But before you go there, you'll bow before the one true Jesus of whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's the truth. There they are questioning Him. There they are accusing Him. Looking for a way to condemn Him to death. They missed the very God that they had studied their whole lives to know. See, Jesus did not fit their box. Because Jesus was too merciful on the people that they put burdens on. And Jesus was too hard on their own sins. A good indicator that you belong to the, uh, the crowd of simply the religious is that your heart is not ruled by mercy and grace. In the church, it is amazing how many people, when, when they're done wrong, they want absolute um, uh, discipline and, and pain and destruction done to those who have done them wrong. But when they've done wrong, oh, 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 grace, grace. God's a God of grace. Jesus is a God of grace to everyone. Jesus deals with sin the way it is and calls it what it is. Across the board. Jesus wasn't any harder on the Pharisees than He was on everybody else. He preached on sin. The same truths that Jesus preached applied to everybody. But to the Pharisees, it encroached upon their sense of self-righteousness. It encroached upon their sense of, of false holiness. It was a light that just... It was like being around a room all of a sudden lights like on a football field just come on and all the light comes and exposes their darkness and their hypocrisy and how they're not really loving at all and how even they stand at war against God and they were angry about it. When people have a heart to see others punished for their bad actions and then yet they think they should somehow their actions be overlooked, you're in dangerous ground. Jesus did not fit into the box that these men had created in their mind of what God should be like. Notice that our text tells us that they tried to 
um, they tried to accuse him, but even the testimonies didn't agree. They tried to find somebody to come up with something against him. And they found none, the Bible says. One of the things uh, that the priest would do on the Day of Atonement, um, each day when they would have the uh, sacrifice in the morning and the sacrifice at night, one of the things that priests would do, it's incredibly important that they examined him and found no guilt. And it's incredibly important that Pilate examined him and found no guilt. It's incredibly important that his disciples had examined him and knew he was the Son of God, and yet every one of them let him go to the cross. But the priest would examine the lamb. And they would look it over. And if there was any blemish on it whatsoever, the lamb was not worthy to be sacrificed. So they would look the lamb over, up and down both sides, front and back. And when they could see that the lamb was flawless, that it was spotless, that it was worthy to be sacrificed, only when they examined the lamb and could say that it has no flaws, then could the lamb go on to be sacrificed. That exact thing is happening with Jesus in our text. He stands before the very people who have spent their life teaching the law, who know that the sacrificial lamb must be pronounced clean. He stands before them and they examine His life and there's none that can find honest guilt. Little did they know that they were being used by God Himself. See, here's where we see God in His deity. Here's where we see the divine control of God over the whole thing. When it looks like man is in control, when it looks like wickedness is reigning, we see that God is still working out His perfect plan. And God used what was meant for evil. He used that very event to be the event where the Lamb of God was called clean, where He was pronounced that there was nothing wrong with Him. And then He was willing to die. He was the Lamb slain, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. But it was in that moment when they bring Him and they look for anybody to find anything. Look Him over. Examine Him. Give us your testimony. Is there anybody that has followed Him? Is there anybody that's heard Him speak? Is there simply one that can give us one negative thing about this man? And it says they found none. It says that those that would speak of something, their testimonies did not agree. And it was evident that they were lying. And we see here the spotless Lamb of God being pronounced clean. The wickedness of man is overwhelming. In contrast, Christ the King stands in humility and doesn't speak a single word to His accusers. There had been times before when they could not trap Him. There had been times before when they tried to get Him caught up in His words every time He answered perfectly. Here, Jesus refuses to answer. And it wasn't because He was afraid He'd trap Himself up. It's because Jesus was doing the will of the Father. Jesus had said, as we looked at last week's text, My hour has now come. It was time for Him to endure the cross. I asked the same question I asked last week. Why would Jesus stand there and endure such shame? Why would Jesus stand there and go through such humiliation and pain? Why? For you. For me. 
And I would submit to you as overwhelming of a thought it is, not only for you and for me, but for the very people that were there accusing Him to die. So that they too could have hope. So that they too could find forgiveness. He knew they needed a Savior too. And as much as it had to pain His heart that His very own people were putting Him up on trial, as much as it had to pain His heart that they missed Him, that they accused Him falsely, I have no doubt that He loved them the same way He loves you and me. And He was willing to endure it for them. How His heart must have hurt as He was mocked and condemned to die by the very people He came to save. I think today, how His heart must hurt when we do the same thing. When we refuse to truly embrace His Word, His commands, to obey what He says, to surrender to His will. It has been said that insecure people need a whipping boy. It is easy for us to preach about the wickedness of these people who put Jesus on trial. But God forbid that we not be honest with ourselves and admit we too have been right there beside them. There's probably somebody here this morning. Jesus is on trial in your heart. And the reality is you are condemning Him to die. Rather than accept what He says and believe what He says and obey what He says, you'd rather put His Word to death and therefore put Him to death with it. We're really not a whole lot different than anybody in our story. We're not different than Peter who fled from fear. We're not different from these, these men who as became the crowd and began to compel others to, uh, to condemn Jesus to die. Let us move to the morning trial. In verse 15, in the morning, the chief priests held consultation with the elders. The trial in the morning was simply another mock trial. It was simply so that it would look right. The decision had already been made, but the law said that they could not condemn a man to death at night. So what do they do? They condemn him to death at night, and then they wait for the crack of dawn so they can go through the exact again with the exact same people and come up to the exact same conclusion. That way, they can say they did it right. And I say this morning that it overwhelms me sometimes our ability to deceive ourselves. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitfully wicked. The ability of our heart to deceive our own selves is overwhelming. The Bible says, beware that no man deceive himself. It also tells us, beware lest any man be deceived. And I see these men. I mean, it, it, seems, it, it seems ridiculous. How do you falsely condemn somebody to die? How do you arrest a man who's committed no crimes... 
How do you come up with a plot? I mean, the Bible tells us that, that before this night, that they came together and plotted how they might kill him. They, that was the goal. The goal was, how can we find a way to kill him? That was their goal. How do you get to a place where you're plotting such wickedness, where you're breaking every single religious rule and, and your conscience is seared and everything that you've taught your whole life is wrong? How do you get to a place where you'll do such a thing, have a trial at night, which you know is against your own rules, and then the next morning go ahead and have the right trial so that it'll look right? I mean, it's, it's overwhelming the ability of us to feel like we do the right thing because we go through motions. It's unbelievable. If we looked, if God was to give us a show of hands this morning, the number of people who live their life different throughout the week, intentionally, thoughtfully, willfully, I'm not talking about simply uh, when we as people fail and have weaknesses, but I mean absolute uh, willful, conscious thought, I'm going to sin against God, it's just the way I live, and yet you'd be stunned at the number that, that go through that way and then show up and somehow feel religious. They heard the preacher preach, sang songs, maybe even lift a hand to God, maybe even felt the Spirit of God. And no different. Just because you go through the motions in the morning doesn't somehow make it right. Jesus is concerned about inward change, not outward appearance. And quite frankly, we're the only ones that even see the outward appearance. God doesn't even look at it. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's internal. God doesn't even judge your, your, your outward appearance. Because your inward appearance is who you really are. That's what He's concerned about. But it's overwhelming. Guys, we are not a whole lot different than the people of our text at times. We, we ease our conscience and we ease our war at God, with God and, and our refusal to repent of sins. We ease it by showing up and going through the motions. Because surely I wouldn't show up if I didn't love God. Sure you do. You don't show up because you love God. You show up because you have a conscience that bears witness that you need to serve God. And you know that you don't. And in order to ease that conscience, you show up to go through the motions to feel like you're religious. That's what they were doing. Now, here's the truth. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. I don't, I'm not saying I know who those people are. I'm not saying it's half of us or ten of us or one of us or all 170 that are here this morning. But my point is, it's a real thing. When Jesus told the story of the... Uh, of the virgins with the ten lamps, five of them were called foolish, five of them were called wise. I think here's the lesson. First of all, we're hopeful to think that half are real. But in dealing with others, we ought to give people the benefit of the doubt. But in dealing with ourselves, we need to deal with ourselves more harshly. I need to deal with my heart as honestly, as purely, and as real as I can before God. No excuses for me. No excuses for my actions. No excuses for my sins. No excuses for my half-heartedness. No excuses for my lack of devotion. I've got to get real between me and God. 
I need to be generous towards others. I need to recognize that uh, I look on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart and I need to be careful not to try to judge other people's hearts. At the same time, we have to be honest about the reality that going through the motions doesn't make a person saved. Being religious doesn't make you right with God. Showing up this morning and raising hands to God and singing songs doesn't mean you actually follow Him. You must be born again. And I pray that God gives you spiritual illumination to see that. It's not about just making a decision. You're going to go to church and be a good person and do what the Bible says. It is about the spiritual illumination that I am a sinner. That I am guilty before God. That I am hopelessly destined to an eternity apart from Him where I will pay forever for my wickedness. Therefore, I need a Savior. And by faith, I will place my faith in Him and what Jesus did at the cross. I will repent of my sins, whatever they may be, and I will follow Him. But see, you need spiritual illumination to see that. You need God to shine His light on your heart. I want to close this morning with the Apostle Peter. In our text, we have the time where Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter is in fear. At first, his world has fallen apart. And now he is falling apart. Just like the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law could not understand the Scriptures in the power of their own mind, Neither could Peter serve the Lord in the power of his own strength. Can I tell you a principle this morning, a spiritual principle that will help you a lot if you'll get a hold of it? Your greatest natural strength will almost always be your greatest spiritual downfall. Say it again. Your greatest natural strength will almost always be your greatest spiritual downfall. You look at the man Moses. The Bible says of Moses, he was the humblest man on earth. The Bible's never said that about anybody except Moses. None. Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Why? Because in a moment of fury, he disobeyed God out of anger, smashed a rock twice hard in a way that God had not told him to do so, and then spoke harshly to the people of Israel. Now, does that sound like something that somebody who's humble would do? No. This is what happens, though, when we begin to trust in our ability to do anything. We don't guard it. Because we're like Moses. We say, hey, I might fail in a lot of ways. I might get pushed over sometimes by people, but I will never blow up and just totally fall on my face and and be prideful, because I'm the humblest person on earth. If you and I were to think about Peter, and we were going to talk about all the ways that Peter would fail, we'd say, well, he's probably, in a lot of them, he did fail this way. He's going to fail being arrogant. He's going to fail being prideful. Uh, He's going to fail at times not showing compassion and mercy to people. But the one place he'd never fail, not Peter, Peter would never run like a coward and deny the Lord. Not Peter. If there's anybody that wouldn't do that, he's the one. You see, this is what happens when we begin to trust in our own natural strength. Your greatest natural strength 
will almost always be your greatest spiritual downfall. We have to learn we can't serve God in the power of our own strength, people. The problem with these Pharisees in our text, they thought they were so wise, so learned. Surely they could not miss the Messiah. They're the most educated people ever. If anybody could recognize Him when He came, it would be them. There's nobody as smart as them. But their greatest natural strength become their greatest spiritual downfall. And Peter's world began to fall apart. And then Peter began to fall apart. But I want you to know something this morning. God was letting that happen. Jesus came to Peter before this happened. He looked Peter in the eyes. He said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed that when you overcome, your faith fail thee not. Jesus didn't pray that it didn't happen. Jesus didn't say, Peter, your world was just about to get rocked. And everything that you thought, how it was all going to work out, is going to crumble under your feet. And you, you were going to act like a coward and deny me, but I prayed that it wasn't going to happen. And so, guess what? It's not going to happen. No. Jesus, in essence, said, Peter, you're fixing to go through something extremely difficult. But I have prayed that when you overcome... I can't help but wonder if during that basic 40-day time frame when Peter's world had fallen apart, when he eventually cursed to deny the Lord. By the way, isn't that interesting? That he used his mouth and began to kind of speak filthy and cuss and curse to convince people he didn't belong to the Lord. And chew on that for a while. That's what the Bible says. I already told you. I didn't, I didn't make it up. I'm just telling you what it says. Now, Peter, his world begins to fall apart. But through it all, God is teaching him. Number one, you have to believe my word. Notice that even Peter, in some ways, was like the other people in our text. He knew what God had said, but... You need, you, you, we have to get it straight. There is no room for that in the Word of God. There is no room for that in the life of the Christian. God, I know that You have told me not to do this, but... God, I know that You've commanded me to, to do this thing, however... This was Peter's downfall. There was just some area he didn't really fully trust the Lord. And through that, the Lord allowed Peter to be broken. You see, we have to be broken before we can really be used of God. We have to come to the end of ourselves. Peter had to come to the end of himself and realize, I don't have the strength to do this by myself. I have no doubt that just like us, Peter never would have thought that's how he would have failed. Peter would have said, no way. There's a lot of things I might mess up in this life. And, you know, cutting off Malchus's ear. Yeah, I could do something like that. But denying the Lord publicly? Never. And then all of a sudden he did. You ever been there? You ever been in that place? No doubt Peter had to be there thinking, how could I do this? How could I get to somewhere in my life where all of a sudden I've compromised my convictions? I, 
If you would have told me two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, that I was going to do something like that, I would have said, you're crazy. And I tell you this morning, if that's you, there's hope. And I believe it's part of the process. God has to break us to where we as His people begin to learn. We can't do anything without Him, folks. Nothing. Paul said, there is not one good thing in me that is in my flesh. Not one. We can't do anything without Him. And sometimes God has to take us to a place where we finally learn that. And that breaking process is not easy. And we find ourselves, just like the Apostle Peter, guilty of things that we would have thought we would have never have done. Thinking things we never would have thought. Going places we never would have went. But I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, you need to understand something. This is still the Apostle Peter I'm talking about. And Jesus still finished His will with the Apostle Peter. And God still grabbed a hold of his heart. And God still used him the way he was going to use him. And God took what was meant for evil and turned it into good. And all things work to the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Don't give up on God this morning. Through it all, I want us to see Jesus. My last point and I'm done. Through it all, Jesus is still moving forward. He's not trying to stop the trial. He's not answering his accusers. He's continuing to move one step at a time towards the cross. Moving there so that his accusers might have a chance at redemption. Continuing to to go the direction he could and, and, and allowing Peter to go through the things Peter was going through so that Peter would eventually be strengthened and learn from it and be molded into the man of God that God wanted him to be. And through it all, God is faithful. We need to understand that through the, the chaos of the world, God is still faithful. That through the wickedness that we can see and that we hear, God is still faithful. God is still good. And you need to know, even if you have fallen on your face, even if you have, have, have turned from the Lord, even if you are guilty of, uh, uh, of condemning Him to die, even this morning if you are on the wrong side of the, of the aisle, if you will, and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, and you have not repented and truly came to Him for forgiveness and healing and, and salvation, even you this morning, He loves you. And He is good. And He desires to have a relationship with you. That's why He endured the shame. That's why He came. As our worship team comes this morning, church, people in the pew, Jesus did not come so that we might have five cars and be rich. Jesus did not come so that all of your problems would fade away. And that you could live a life of bliss. Jesus did not come to shelter you from the consequences of your actions. Jesus came to save you from your sins. Jesus came to die on Calvary's cross so that everything that I've done wrong, every sin I've committed, every sin you've ever committed, could be placed on His shoulders, and God could look at us and say, your penalty was paid when Jesus paid it all on the cross. That's why He came. 
That's why we need a Savior. And God blesses us along the way. The Christian life is the greatest life you'll ever live. It's not going to be uh, totally free from sorrow and totally free from pain, totally free from sickness. You're still going to die like everybody else. Your body's still going to get old. We still live in a fallen world. But it is the greatest life you'll ever live. But Jesus came that we might be saved. Saved. Not just religious. Not just so that we could go to church. Not just so that we could sing songs. But He died so that you could be saved. And that you could have a real authentic relationship with God. That's what God wants is a relationship with you. It's not your church attendance. That will follow. It's not your singing. That will follow. It's not your giving. That will follow. What He wants is you. That's what He wants. You. That's why He went through what He went through. For you. Lord, I pray that you move all over this room. I pray, God, I said everything you have to say.
when my world is shed.